I want to read to you the 24th Psalm, and then we'll pray, and we're going to throw ourselves into this text. So, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your hands, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Over the last a few weeks, we have begun um, a series in which we've been looking at this strange breed of uh, individual you see in scriptures who are called the Nazarites. And it all stems from a passage in Mo- the law of Moses in Numbers chapter 6, where he stipulates the possibility of an individual making a vow to God in which they offer themselves to God in specific ways for an intense season of devotion to God. Ideally, with the view that they would then serve God in specific ways as well. And uh, this is what we've been interested in. I've begun to unpack some of the, the stories of Nazarites in Scripture. But if I was to provoke you with the reason why we're doing this, there, there are really two things that, that come to my mind. That on the one hand, there is a longing in me to begin to kind of provoke your imagination and enable you to see the beauty of a life that is offered to God in wholehearted devotion. There is something beautiful, isn't there, about a person living passionately with a singularity of focus and when God is the object of their desire. Um, one example that came to my mind from Scripture is a very small story, actually. We know little, very little about this character, but it's a woman in Luke's Gospel called Anna, who, as a young lady no doubt married somewhere in her mid-teens, was married for seven years, and then her husband passed away. And when we encounter her in Luke chapter 2, very briefly here, she's 84 years of age. And for the time between her becoming a widow in her early 20s, most likely, and her 84th year, where we meet her here, Luke tells us that she did not depart from the temple, worshipping with fasting and prayer, night and day. So having been widowed, instead of her heart turning in on itself in bitterness and running away from God in whatever way you might be tempted to in the midst of suffering, she does the opposite. She offers her life more wholeheartedly and passionately to God and becomes um, a a, a full-time worshiper, someone who seeks the presence of God continually in the temple grounds. The reason why she's mentioned in Luke's gospel is because as the parents of Jesus, when he's a baby, bring him to the temple for the purpose of engaging in certain ceremonies, he, 
as brought in, and it tells us, Luke tells us that coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. This woman who probably was regarded as slightly strange, a little bit eccentric, but certainly passionate, suddenly comes alive at the age of 84 because a baby is arriving at the temple and she knows something in her spirit that nobody else knows. Why? Because the father wants to reveal things to his people and to this woman specifically for her incredible devotion. She's rewarded in a sense for that with a glimpse of the Messiah, no doubt dying before she sees his ministry come to fruition. Another story, when I was a kid, um, this lady was particularly famous. She's still alive, late 70s, almost 80, a lady called Jackie Pullinger. And Jackie is famous because when she was a young woman, she'd studied oboe, become an oboist, but she, her real heart was for missions. She wanted to take the gospel to people who had not yet heard of Christ. And so she made an effort to become a missionary, but in contacting various missions organizations, nobody wanted to fund and support her. No doubt because she hadn't made adequate preparations for the field. But she was the type of person who would do it anyway. And she bought a one-way ticket to go to Hong Kong and uh, arrived there with nothing more than $10 in her pocket. And uh, the woman just began to immerse herself in life in Hong Kong. And she particularly took an interest in working in an area, in the Kowloon area, that at the time was not being policed. The authorities wouldn't enter there because it was ruled by the triads, the gangsters in Hong Kong, and where the, in, the main industry was the opium industry. But she found herself in that area of Hong Kong beginning to minister to addicts and gang members. And through, she can, you can read her story in a book called Chasing the Dragon, which is, a, which is a phrase used of someone coming off heroin. But in her ministry, she, um, or getting high, I can't remember, that it's one or the other, and uh, quite opposite, I'm not quite sure which, probably getting high actually, come to think of it. But in her ministry, she, she would help these, these young men come off their addictions by teaching them to seek God in prayer, and particularly using the gift of tongues. And these, these young men were miraculously delivered delivered even from cold turkey, and uh, experienced the presence of God and salvation. And uh, she, her, her work over decades there built up ministries to help redeem lives from all the criminality and the brokenness that, that could otherwise have overtaken them. And I, I just feel somewhat a measure of awe when I hear about people like this. It is amazing what a life can do that is wholly devoted to God. And I want you to see that. I want you to be stirred by that. But I also hope that the Holy Spirit, and I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to individuals here in unique ways. The conversations I've had over recent Sundays have been confirming this to me, that, that God is at work among us and doing things in people's hearts. The Spirit moves in his children. He wants to awaken you. Now, last week, we began to unpack the story of Samson, one example of a Nazarite in Scripture. And I was particularly interested in the way that God um, works. He always works his saving plan through people. This is what we need to be alert to so that we'll be ready to offer ourselves that God, we can be servants of God. And what he's particularly interested in is holiness, which is the essence of what it means to be a Nazarite. And so Samson was set aside by God before he was even conceived in his mother's womb to be a Nazarite devoted to God for the duration of his life. 
We're going to continue exploring his story and understand some of the ways in which that went wrong and also went right in God's plan. But what I want to do today, really, I was really gripped by this psalm as I was thinking about coming up to this Sunday. I want to just double-click on that theme of what it means to be prepared for service. I feel provoked to think about this partly because it is the ninth birthday of the church. I think at these particular moments, it's right and appropriate to look back and to give thanks. But the last thing we ever want to do is to imagine that, that we can merely coast at this point. When churches um, and any institution has been around for any length of time, the, the risk, of course, is that you stop dreaming and you stop believing and you stop acting with faith and confidence in a holy God who can do a mighty, mighty things. You can become institutionalized. You can become calcified. When we were away on um, sabbatical, my, um, it, we came, we, we'd been away for a few months and we came back to discover that the flat, the, was, the water pressure in the flat wasn't, wasn't running at full pressure. So you turn on a shower upstairs and uh, if someone turned on a tap somewhere else in the house, it would turn to a mere trickle. And at first you're wondering, was it like this before? And then gradually you think, no, 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 I seem to remember we could actually enjoy showers before. And so I gradually came to the conviction I had to reluctantly call a plumber. And we got hold of a plumber, he came in, he had a little look at the the stopcock, which is the main tap that supplies the house, and he, he touched it and moved it a millimeter, and immediately all the water pressure came back as the calcification in the taps was released, and suddenly the flow was, um, was, was there, and along with the flow was a massive invoice for his five minutes of work. <laughs> and of course, this is, this is what you expect in London, right? But anyway, I, this, is, this is the image of my mind when I think about where we're at as a church. The last thing we want to do is, that, is to see anything like calcification taking place. We want the Holy Spirit's power to flow through us. There is more yet to come. There is more to anticipate and expect what God is going to do in and through you, through us. And there's an urgency to that question. What does God want of us? What is he calling us to? And how does he want to, be, to prepare people for the works that he puts in front of them? That's what I want to, to wrestle with. And I believe that this psalm offers us some answers. And it, offers, it lays before us a kind of triple call for the believer specifically, but also for any of you who are not Christian, to hear the summons here. Three things that David puts in front of us that alerts you to what God wants in your life. The first is this. It's the call to surrender. Now hear how he opens the psalm with a strong declaration of the reality of the God he's worshipping. He says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, and the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What David is doing is he is putting in front of you the emphatic, confident assertion that everything you see around you and indeed your own life belongs to the God who made you. Stating something like that is a confrontational statement. There's something brash and almost offensive about that kind of a claim. And I think that that is true anywhere you look in history at any society, really, because the human heart 
has one thing that's, that's consistent all through history, which is the desire to rebel against our Creator. It's there right at the story at the beginning of Scripture, that as soon as Adam and Eve are made, they begin, there begins this moment of rebellion that unleashes the human bid for autonomy that has, that has been our problem ever since. And if that is the human nature that's, that's widespread, even more so in a culture such as ours, that we experience the confrontation and the difficulty of believing in a God who has a claim on our lives. Somewhere around the, the late 50s into the 1960s and 70s, a massive shift took place in Western culture at large and, and that we're experiencing here in Britain even to this day. The shift in mindset in which some of the things were good, that, that a, fight, a broad sort of uh, fight for equality for those who were, who were oppressed and overlooked, but that was often rooted in, in a kind of philosophy of individualism. The championing of the individual's rights. Which has given birth to what we now experience. Which is that, that, that everybody believes that the world must conform to my desires and my definition of what truth is. But when the scriptures come along and say, this is God's world and you are God's creatures. You can see how that immediately smashes into our cultural idol, the exaltation of the self and of the individual's autonomy. And it tells you you're small. It tells you that our bid for autonomy and independence from God is the problem that is at the root of the sicknesses and the chaos that we're seeing in, in our culture at large. Against all of that, David makes this assertion, the world is God's and the people in it are God's. You are God's. You belong to him. It's a double claim. At one level, it's a claim on you because he's your maker. So that rebellion against God, who owns this world, is something like a mutiny or treason. Mutiny takes place when a company overthrow the ruler, like, a, like the, the shipmates on a ship overthrow the captain. And what often ensues then is chaos amidst all the order of that ship collapsing. Treason is when there is a conspiracy to overthrow the legitimate rulers and governors, and particularly in a nation. And again, wherever there's been treason and rebellion against rulers, typically there has been unleashed in enormous suffering and chaos as a result. In a sense, that's exactly what human heart has done against God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, but yet we have rejected that. And the result always is suffering. Suffering out there in a world where we tear each other to shreds, but also in our own hearts where there is disorder. We're listening to these testimonies, these honest and humble testimonies of the reality of what happens when we run away and resist God's authority in our lives. We begin to self-destruct. And we experience the misery of self-destruction. The sheen wears off very rapidly, doesn't it? You realize you've messed things up. And what is offered to us in Scripture is divine pardon. Yes, we've been mutinous. Yes, we've committed cosmic treason. But God says, come back. And you can come back under my rule and I'll bring order to the chaos. I'll bring peace amidst all the distress. 
I love the story of um, how after founding Apple Computers with his friend Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs uh, ran the company from 1976 until 1985. An interesting detail was that around that time as the company had grown and grown, among the board there was a power struggle that took place in 1985 and it led to Steve Jobs more or less being ousted from the company. It's this kind of mutiny that I've been describing. The kind of rightful owner and ruler rejected it in a sense. And over the next 12 years, Apple then began to decline in its uh, innovation and of course then also in its profits and was beginning to be a failing company and almost on the edge of bankruptcy. Meanwhile, Steve Jobs had gone off and founded two more successful companies. And all of those came back together when Apple purchased Steve Jobs' companies. Some beautiful moment of vindication, really. In 1997, he came back to become the CEO again of of Apple Computers and brought in Johnny Ive, the chief designer, And then, of course, the 2000s hit with all the products that began to change our lives and the explosion in the value of that company under its kind of rightful leadership. And there's a picture for us, friends, of what it means to assert that God, this is God's world and we are God's people. We're saying, Lord, come in and take your throne. Take your throne in our lives because you're our maker. But I also think this is a double claim because not only is he our maker, The scriptures also tell us that he's our redeemer. That all the debt that we have accrued in our rebellion against God has been paid by God, cancelled by him. You know, if you think about what we were like, like we've been like a child taking, a, a wayward son taking his father's car from the garage and credit card from the from the drawer. And going on a bender, buying alcohol, drugs, and wild joyriding, and eventually smashing the car. And what does the father do? He comes along and finds the son in in amidst the wreckage. Before the police arrive, says, these are my drugs, this is my alcohol, and this is, I was the one who crashed the car. He takes the debt away in order to give us a fresh start. In the New Testament, there's a potent way this is expressed in 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul is seeking to exhort God's people towards holiness, and he reminds us of who we belong to. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. He's speaking about the, the shed blood of Jesus. So glorify God in your body. And what God is saying to us, friends, is that you have been twice purchased. First, by virtue of the fact that he made you. He gave you your breath. But then by virtue of the fact that he gave his son for you. And the shed blood of Christ is the ransom price to deliver you and to make you his own. And what is the right response to this? When we read the psalm, we hear, the earth is God's and I am God's. What is the right response to this? And the only answer can be absolute and unconditional surrender. To surrender is to come and say, you have authority. I give up. I give up resisting. I give up rebelling. I give up fighting. Come and take rule in my life.
And to call it unconditional surrender means that you, you hold nothing back. That continually you're offering to God your life, your heart, everything that you are and have. It may sound like bad news, but the promise is always that because God is a loving Father, He wants to bring liberty when you surrender to Him. He wants to redeem and transform and heal your life. The first call then is to surrender. The second call that comes through in the psalm is the call to separation, which is a theme that we've been exploring in this series, the idea of being separated in order to be holy to God. It's the, the essential meaning of what holiness means. It means to be, to be separated from common use, set apart from common usage to be devoted entirely to God. And now hear what David then says in verse 3. He, says, he asks a question. It's a penetrating question. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand or dwell in his holy place? And immediately, I think, the question isn't just on, on the who, but it's also on the action here, ascend and dwell. Is this even in your heart? Do you even desire what David is describing here. As you, you may recall, when we, in the last few months when we were on sabbatical, we spent a lot of time um, in mountains and, and hiking up mountains, the biggest of which was Mount Kinabalu in Malaysia, um, over 4,000 meters up. And we took our oldest two children, Seth and Isla. We had to make the, the first ascent um, and arrive at a lodge and sleep overnight at a lodge before we summited. And so we went to bed around 10 o'clock at night uh, in these bunk beds, the four of us in this little lodge area. And uh, then we had to wake at 2 in the morning. They offered you scrambled eggs and a cooked breakfast, which I, I didn't touch, but my son ate far too many scrambled eggs. And then we set off at half past 2, 3 o'clock in the morning with head torches in pitch blackness as everybody in the lodge departed to make that, that silent trudge uphill. Silent apart from... Initially, my son, who was complaining for about half an hour until he vomited all the eggs everywhere. (laughs) All right. And then, hello. uh, Wifey, you are up there, aren't you, sweetheart? Good. Childcare was not available this evening. Uh, okay. <laughs> then the next leg, we continued on, and it, it was the turn of my daughter to make, um, to, to complain for about two hours. And I ended up, as we got towards the summit, we had just, we had just about half a kilometer to go. But at that point, um, not only was the, the, the climb steep, but also the oxygen levels were low because the air was so thin. It was the equivalent of breathing about 11% oxygen, whereas normally it's 21, 22%. So half the oxygen you need. My heart is racing, and I'm carrying my eight-year-old daughter on my back, making very slow progress. And, you know, the question kept coming to mind. Do we want to do this? You know, do, do we really want to ascend this hill? Of course, the minute I put her down, 
she skips off like Bambi up to the summit of the, the mountain. And we begin to take in the sunrise. But then the temperature drops. And we're warned not to stay too long up there because it can get dangerous beyond a certain time of morning. All these questions. Do you want to ascend? And do you want to dwell in a place of danger and exposure and risk? And there's the question of our desires at play here. When he asks this, who shall ascend and who shall dwell? Do you even want to? Is it your heart's longing and desire to be nearer to God or are you running away from him? Or at least maintaining a healthy distance? And then, of course, it gets more penetrating still when he begins to answer the question. And he says, he who has clean hands, first of all, meaning that you're not tainted by evil. He who has a pure heart, free of wicked intentions and motivations and desires and thoughts, who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. In other words, you don't worship idols, which is to say that nothing in this world has a stronger hold on you than God does. And you wouldn't trade nearness to God for any created thing. And does not swear deceitfully. You're a person of integrity. So that there is the same consistency that runs from the outside of your life right through to the core of who you are. Public and private. Revealed and hidden. These are, these are the most penetrating questions you can ask. Who, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And I think the honest answer when we read this is, well, nobody can. No one's righteous. No, not one. But there's a gospel promise even in the psalm, as he then says in verse 5, that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He'll receive righteousness. He'll receive justification from God. This is the gospel, friends. That what God isn't lo- is looking for is not that you must be perfect in order to approach him, but that you must approach him by faith through Christ, and receive the righteousness that is gifted to you as his child. I want you to hear some of the the provocations that come through in the New Testament on this theme of holiness. In Hebrews 12 verse 14, we're told to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. For the avoidance of any doubt, the scriptures are clear. That when God saves you and brings you into his family, God wants you to pursue holiness. Then in 1 Peter 1, this is stated again. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So he's saying you used to be bound in in the ignorance of your lusts. And he's saying, don't go back to that. Don't be conformed to the way you used to live. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And he goes on and says, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Live with a state of reverence knowing that you're meant to 
Be aware of what it is God demands and calls you to. Knowing, he says, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is the gospel. You were ransomed from sin to be brought into the presence of God so that you and I who do not qualify to ascend the hill or to dwell in his holy place are nevertheless yet given the gift of holiness and of righteousness and now pursue it with all your might, he's saying. Don't imagine that because God has welcomed you into his presence that, he wants to, that he's now willing and to let you to do whatever you, you please. He's saying, no, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is our calling, friends. The call to separation. And finally, there's the call to seeking God. Look at verse 6. He says, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. To seek God's face is to seek his favor on our lives, his blessing and nearness to him. Now, at first glance, what this seems to call to mind is the image of the individual who is called into deep engagement with God. David deliberately refers to God here as the God of Jacob. And what was Jacob famous for? A couple of things. One was being a cheat and a scoundrel who tricked his older brother Esau out of his inheritance and his blessing and then ran away from him in fear that he'd be murdered by that same brother. But he's famous also for this, that after 14 years he returned to be reconciled with Esau and live in his homeland. And on his journey home, he encounters the angel of the Lord at a place called the Brook of Jabbok. And there he wrestles with the angel of the Lord all night long. And as dawn is beginning to break, the angel says to Jacob, let me go for the day has broken. And Jacob replies and says, I will not let you go until you bless me. This is one of the most important moments, not only in Jacob's life, but in all of Scripture. As Jacob is coming home, wrestles with God, because the angel then replies to him and says, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So that a nation that comes from his loins is named after this moment. And the name Israel means wrestling. It's to do with wrestling with God. So when David describes here those who seek the face of the God of Jacob, he's calling to mind the image of the wrestler. The person who is dissatisfied with life as it is and longs to know God more deeply, longs to be drawn into the presence of God and to, to, to develop the intimacy and the passion through prayer and through the promises of Scripture to experience the favor of God on your life. Is God drawing you personally into deeper intimacy? As Leah was praying for us, is he, is he awakening that spirit within you to take him seriously, perhaps for the first time? And not only does this, this verse call to, to mind the image of the individual wrestling with God, but also 
there's something corporate, communal about this, because David says, such is the generation of those who seek him. He's not envisioning just ones and twos wrestling with God. He's envisioning a whole people, even a generation wrestling with God, coming back to him, seeking him, being transformed by him, experiencing his grace flowing to us. There are moments throughout the Bible where you see this, where you see God's people who've been wandering away, forgotten him, forgotten his ways, squandering the blessings that he's given to them and experiencing the suffering and the chaos of being far from God. And then God begins to stir and awaken them together to return to him. We call this revival. When revival means coming alive again, coming alive to God in fresh ways. And when it happens to lots of people at the same time, it has to be a mighty work of the God's Holy Spirit. One of my favorite examples of this takes place in Nehemiah chapter 8, where God's people had been taken into exile. They had lived in Israel for some time, but they had forgotten God, and God allowed them to experience the misery of being conquered and exiled, drawn into um, exile, living in foreign lands and leaving their land in, in absolute destruction and waste. But when, when hope begins again, a new day dawns, they begin to return home. And they start to reconstruct their temple and they start to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem, symbolic of the restoration of their spiritual life. But also there is this this wonderful moment in Nehemiah chapter 8 where Ezra the scribe has rediscovered the law of God in the temple, the scrolls. And people, you know, entire generations of Israelites have grown up not knowing God's law and not having heard it. And he and his colleagues begin to unroll the scrolls and read them out loud to the people gathered in the courtyard in Jerusalem. And as they read from the scriptures, line by line, they explain as they go. And the word of God has this penetrating power when the Holy Spirit is on it to cut you to the heart and to begin to bring about the transformation even in that moment, in that instance that you long for. It's food to your soul. It's water to your thirsty palate. And people experience it in this way, but initially it causes them to be sorrowful. As they're reading from the law, it, it, we're told in Nehemiah 8 that, that they begin to mourn and to grieve and to feel brokenness for having forgotten God and having wandered from him for so long. And things get so bad that Nehemiah stands up and he says, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. He says, go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord our, to, to, holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying, now is not the time for grief any longer, but rather for celebration. And this is, this is what is, anybody who's come to God in repentance will know exactly what is going on here. You come to him with a sense of wretchedness and brokenness and conviction of soul. You feel filthy. You feel 
that you, you're sick to the very pit of your stomach at what you have done and what you have become and the mess you have made. And you hate it. You even say, I hate myself. And I hate it. And when you're particularly moved, you might weep. And as you are brought to that moment of brokenness where you come on your knees before God, God, God convicts you and you see holiness again and you long for it. At one and the same time, God's spirit comes to bring comfort and joy to you. So that you're not overcome by sadness. That it begins a new chapter, a new leaf is turned. A moment of happiness dawns in your mind and in your heart. As your life begins to turn around, you're restored to God and you can feast. You're invited to the feast. You're invited to the feast at Christ's table. You're welcomed in. You're lavished with grace. What David is envisioning, friends, is a people of God who together recognize God's sovereignty over us and surrender to him. Who are alert to his mightiness and holiness and want to be separated towards him, want to ascend the hill, draw near to God and seek him, earnestly seek him. And you see how all of this begins to then result in what he describes at the end of this psalm. You hear how the psalm ended. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And he repeats the whole thing, more or less the same. What he's describing here, as I read it, is that when God's people are brought to this point of true humility, God is, is enthroned as Lord and we come to him in, in repentance and holiness and seeking him. It's as though the, the gates of the city are thrown wide and God enters in, his presence comes. I think David saw glimpses of this in reality in his life, such as when the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured by the Philistines, is brought back home along the roads, back and into Jerusalem, and he celebrates in wild dancing and happiness Gates fling wide. God is coming home. But I think he's, he's prophetically picturing something better even than that. Who does this psalm speak about? It speaks primarily about Jesus. It speaks about a saviour who was truly surrendered, in unconditional surrender to the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me, Christ said. And then on on his knees in the garden, not my will, but your will be done. True surrender. Perfect separation and holiness. A life wholly dedicated and devoted to God, not touched by sin, even on the inner parts. And constantly seeking God in total communion. And Christ flings wide the doors and ushers in the presence of God for his people. And the church lives in the wake of that, that grace and of the gospel of what Christ accomplished by his triumphal fulfilling of this psalm. And we're invited to partake in that even now. 
I was sharing this morning how just last week a brother at Grace um, took me to one side at the end of the evening service and just said how timely he felt in the spirit that this series was. And he said that that week he'd been at a prayer gathering of believers from different churches. And uh, in that prayer gathering, that he hadn't, he, he hadn't heard anyone mention the theme of Nazarites for, more, for 15 years or so. But he'd heard me preach on it the Sunday before, and then that same week, a lady said, look, I feel like God is drawing us back to the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. And I think God is, by his spirit, he's, he's, he's doing something in us. I want to ask you, what is he doing in you? What is he calling you to? Is he calling you to fresh surrender? Is he calling you to, to separation, to cutting out of your life those things that have ruined your walk with the Lord and are hurting and harming you? How is he drawing you into a deeper fellowship of seeking him? The Lord wants your life entirely. Without reservation, he wants all of you. He wants all of me. And when we as a people offer ourselves to God in this way, his presence is ushered in. This week, as we gather for Upper Room on Wednesday night, as elders, we felt um, that it was appropriate to invite not only all of us to attend and to seek God together in prayer, but also to encourage you, not compel you, this is a very personal thing, but to encourage you that you may want to set aside some time, perhaps that day, to fasting. As a way of signaling to God and to your own heart, I want to be yours, Lord. We want to be yours, Lord. I want to leave a moment here before we respond in worship. I feel that God is is doing deep work in in our lives. And he wants us to participate by responding and saying yes to him, inviting his cleansing power. He longs for us to be a holy people. He's given us all that we need in Christ for that to be true.